Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Vaping is a vexed public policy issue at the moment. On one hand, vaping's encouraged. Uh, This is when it's used to replace cigarette smoking, which remains the leading cause of preventable death in Australia. And on the other hand, there are calls to ban vaping as a way to prevent children and non-smokers taking up the habit. And this is because vaping isn't harm-free, especially when the market's unregulated for vaping at the moment in Australia. But is there a middle ground? Uh, If so, how do we find our way there? Dr Nicole Lee is an adjunct Professor at the National Drug Research Institute and Director at 360 Edge, which is a consultancy specialising in the alcohol and other drug sector. And it's great to have you with us, Nicole. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. And we're renowned here um, in Australia globally for driving down smoking rates. You know, maybe give us a bit of a lay of the land before we get stuck into to vaping specifically. Like, how, what are the current rates of smoking and vaping in Australia at the moment? Yeah, so we've we have been very successful over many many decades in reducing our um, cigarette use, um, and it's down around the kind of ten eleven percent um, of adults at the moment. Um, for example, in the um, like in the nineteen seventies, it was much more. It was closer to like thirty or forty percent of people. So it's come down a long way. Um, and that's been through a combination of um, restricting uh, restricting trade, so regulating more tightly, um, so regulating who can who can smoke and you know the age that you can smoke and where you can smoke, and also at the same time um, putting in place a lot of education um, and treatment options for people. And so as vaping has become more popular and and prominent, uh, what have you kind of observed about ways that sort of government has taken to, uh, I suppose, curtail or or limit use for certain people? There was a a law passed in 2021 that that requires a prescription to buy vaping products, but it seems, of course, that's not really applied in, in a lot of circumstances. Yeah, so we are the only country um, in the world to um, take this route and after a year of that legislation being in place, it's clearly not working. Um, all that's happened is that um, people just go and buy on the black market now rather than going to their GP to go get a prescription and um, a thriving black market means that kids can get more access to it. So um, what we've done is made it illegal to possess and use nicotine vaping products without a prescription. So it means you have to go to your GP, get a prescription, then you can go to the pharmacy and um, or uh, buy it online with that prescription. Um, but the Cancer Council did a, a little bit of um, research around this um, a year or so ago and they found that more than 90% of people were still buying them illegally. So this, the way that we've gone um, down this path hasn't really um, impacted on use at all. Some other countries have done um, gone a completely different way and they've, they've regulated vaping in the same way that we regulate cigarettes and alcohol. So they've made it, um, you can't buy it unless you're over 18, you can only buy it in certain places um, and there's restrictions about what can be in it. 
I mean, at, at the top I said, you know, on one hand we're, we're seeing, you know, some people encouraged to vape because if it gets them off, off cigarettes and others being, you know, trying to prevent people from taking up vaping directly, um, especially if they're currently a non-smoker, what, I mean, what are the relative harms there with regards to, to cigarette smoking, uh, Nicole, versus vaping? Well, cigarette smoking, we absolutely know, is deadly and it's very, very harmful. So as you said at the beginning, it's the leading preventable cause of death in Australia. It causes about 13% of all deaths. Um, Most of those deaths are from some kind of cancer, um, emphysema, heart attack, stroke, those kind of of long-term health uh, issues. And we know also that people who smoke regularly, they lose about 10 years off their life compared to people who don't smoke. Um, Vaping doesn't have... So regulated nicotine doesn't, as in vapes, doesn't have um, all of the dangerous chemicals that are contained in cigarettes. So the problem is that when you burn tobacco, a whole range of deadly chemicals get released and they're the things that cause the cancer and the heart attack and stroke. And um, in addition to that, manufactured cigarettes also have additional chemicals added in that also make them dangerous. Just taking the nicotine itself um, reduces that risk by about 95%. So... That's the um, rationale for having nicotine gum, for example, and nicotine patches. It's the same kind of thing. Just have the nicotine and then don't get all of the other deadly chemicals. And so your health risk is reduced um, significantly. And one of the main concerns in sort of media reporting and the like has been the apparent rise in vaping among young people and, and teens and that sort of thing. Just sort of how much of an issue is that? You know, there's been terms like a, a teen vaping crisis thrown around. There's been some reporting about the prevalence of this in schools. Uh, is, is it a really sort of major issue in your view? Um, it, there is definitely... There's anecdotal evidence that um, there's been an increase in vaping among young people, but we don't have a lot of data to actually know for sure. Um, the pro- problem with vaping in some ways is it's, it's very visible so when you vape you get this kind of big white plume of um, vapor coming out and so you can really see when people are smoking um, but from the data that we do have it it looks as though um, among teenagers there's still more teenagers smoking cigarettes than there are vaping um, and um, that is that is to me, a much bigger concern. I think we should be focusing our attention on kids who are smoking and kids who are drinking alcohol um, as much as we are on vaping. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, with regards to what people worry about and I guess, you know, especially if people didn't grow up with vaping, I guess, that this idea of mm. it's, it's unfamiliar. Do you think that that's driving some of the concern Nicole, that it's just this sort of, and also because it's an unregulated market, what are, what's actually in the vapes? These sorts of questions that that particularly parents might have. Yeah, that's definitely the the kind of key questions that parents have, and I think the um, the reporting in the media and some of the commentary in the media is really confusing a whole load of issues, and so it it means you know I'm I'm a parent too, and I. As a parent, you, um, the messages are, are very confusing. Um, so the, the main problem with 
vaping is becoming addicted to nicotine um, and it doesn't come with any of the other things. And obviously we don't want kids kind of who weren't smoking already to become addicted to nicotine. Um, but we also don't want to cut off um, supply to people who could use it as a medicine. So there's this kind of balance that we need to strike. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe we could tolerate... Um, a temporary increase in, um, you know, older teenagers, for example, who are mostly who are the ones that are vaping, um, vaping because most people only try it once or twice and they don't use it um, over the long term. So when we kind of get worried about this increase in people vaping, we need to think about a bigger context as well. Are they are they using regularly or are they just kind of trying it because there's so much um, kind of media around it at the moment? Speaking with adjunct professor Nicole Lee from the National Drug Research Institute and, and Curtin University, all about vaping. And, I mean, there is um, a, a process the government's looking at this. The Therapeutic Goods Administration has done um, some consulting and, and, as I understand it, kind of speaking to government in terms of what's come out of that. Um, what, what are you hoping the government might look to in terms of reform and, and regulation going forward? I suppose keeping in mind that vaping can be an important, uh, can, can provide an important purpose for some people who might be trying to, to get off kind of cigarette smoking and the like. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we're trying to balance this um, kind of re- you know, re- restriction on, on young people just picking it up for fun um, with the a very useful, um, a very useful way it can help with reducing smoking rates. And we've seen in other countries where they've introduced vaping. Um, the UK, for example, has um, really focused on this as a harm reduction tool and their rates of, of cigarette smoking are starting to come down um, much faster than ours now. Um, so the, the, the issue really is, and we've known this from decades of um, other illicit drug prohibition, as soon as you start banning something that people still want, all that happens is a black market pops up and then it becomes more available for young people to use. And that's not what we want. Um, So I, in my view, we need to follow um, what some other countries have done, the UK, New Zealand and the US, have all brought in legislation that restricts access but controls the access um, rather than the access being controlled by the black market. So allowing vapes and nicotine to be sold legally in um, particular uh, controlled environments. So either um, it could be down a commercial um, route where, like cigarettes, so you can buy them, but they're heavily restricted, they're plain packaged, they're behind a counter, you have to ask for them, you have to show ID, a whole range of other, and you can't just smoke anywhere, there's a lot of restrictions on where you can smoke. Um, or we go down um, the pharmaceutical route, and it's like nicotine patches and gum. So you go to the pharmacy and... Um, if you're wanting to use it to stop smoking and then they can give you some health advice as well and help you through that process. So either of those routes, we've got um, very good policies already in place for smoking cigarettes on one hand and pharmaceuticals on the other route. And so we've already got established mechanisms to make this work. What we do know is that prohibition 
has never worked for any drugs. It's never reduced use or um, supply or access to any drugs that have been completely banned that people want to use. So that going down that route is, um, is going to be fraud. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, we we're saying that these e-cigarettes, vapes um, have been around a long time and other countries have sort of, you know, in many ways resolved their use in, in their societies. Why are we still debate, debating the, the way forward, Nicole? I mean, is there, are we dealing with different issues in Australia than other countries or what, what's, what's the hold up, I guess? Yeah, there doesn't seem to be... No, there's no particular reason why Australia couldn't go down um, the same route as other um, as other countries have done. As you said, like, vapes have been around for more than 20 years now, and so we do have a lot of research um, around them over a long period of time and some very detailed research to guide um, what happens next. Um, and Australia, like, 20 years ago used to be... Um, hailed as the kind of leaders in um, alcohol, tobacco and drug policy. We we had really innovative, um, effective measures in place and over time we've become more and more conservative about drugs and this um, vaping's just been caught up in that very conservative view about drugs and the, the idea that if we ban them then everyone will stop using, which is completely ridiculous because um, we know that you know, 43% of Australians have tried an illicit drug despite them being illegal for a yeah, very long time. Yeah, I know. The, the stats don't bear out the, the conservatism. And I wonder also just quickly before we let you go is if parents are concerned about their kids, and I think this is where a lot of the, the, the worry is and, and what the sort of more alarmist end of the, the reporting on these issues is kind of tapping into, you know, what what can families do or what, where can, you know, young people be directed, I guess, for, for help or information on, on vaping? Mm, I, I think the most important thing is to open the lines of communication with young people about a whole range of drugs. You know, talk to them very early about um, both why people use and, why, and what the dangers are and what the risks are. And we know that if we give... Um, kids um even you know even in you know primary school or early high school that young um information good information about the risks and harms to do with drugs they tend to make much healthier choices they tend to not um pick up drugs we know like we know even this from um rates of smoking for example nearly all of the um, reduction in smoking that we've seen in Australia is the result of young people not picking it up. And that's because we've provided really excellent education to them about the, the risks and harms about um, smoking. So we, we do have all of these mechanisms already tried and tested and we just need to apply them to vaping now. Yeah, I, my mind goes to that sort of butchered um, sexual consent ad that came out from the government a little exactly. while ago, and I think we should probably yeah. go down a bit of a different route um, with this particular issue. It's been um, great having your insights on the show to morning, uh, this morning, Nicole. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app.
And consumer advocates and some governments even are encouraging us all to electrify our homes, which involves switching over to electrical appliances if we're running gas ones. But there's a war of facts that seems to be happening on the benefits of households going all electric. Uh, And some are pointing the finger at the gas lobby, um, saying they're seeking to muddy the waters over the cost benefits of switching. Uh, Giles Parkinson is editor of Renew Economy. Renew Economy covers all sorts of issues and including uh, the the switch over from gas. And uh, Giles, it's good to have you there. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me on. And I mean, what's your sense of the information available to households, Giles, about the cost and ease of switching over to electrical appliances and away from gas? Oh, look, there's a terrible disinformation campaign happening right now. Um, the gas lobby is becoming increasingly desperate. Um, basically, they're kind of sort of seeing the end of their business and their business model and all their investments. If you think about the sort of the gas networks, they've got pipelines sort of running all, all through our cities, and um, they're just worried that the flow of gas into homes and businesses will slow to a trickle. And, you know, for very good reason, um, gas um, is highly polluting. Uh, we now know that, um, and it's really expensive. And we're now getting alternatives um, um, through electrical appliances, which are more efficient, um, much cleaner, and can compete on price and will continue to inc- um, compete on price. So, you know, it's um, you know, it, look, it's just the same thing we've just seen over and over again. You know, we've seen some the in the grid with the coal-fired power plants and, and the gas industry there too. We've seen it in cars with the resistance of many of the world's major car makers and sort of you know, not wanting to make the switch to electric vehicles. Um, you know, the problem with this is not just a, a change of technology for them. It's kind of like the end of their business model. And so naturally you'd expect them to, to fight against it. Um, you'd rather wish they didn't, but um, that's kind of where the um, capitalism rewards... Um, um, it sort of structures its um, its um, its business thing. You know, you've got executives who are on short term and medium term um, bonuses and things like that, and um, they need to keep the profits rolling through the door so they don't think about the, the bigger picture. Um, and that's basically what happens. But yeah, the current thing about the the stuff in the homes is is really getting quite funny and quite silly now. It's sort of talking about you know it'll be the end of the barbecue and um, you know there'll be massive blackouts and things like that. And we're just going, hang on, guys, look. It's, First, um, first yeah. they took the utes and then they took the barbecues. Um, I know, I know. That's right. They ruined the weekend. They took the utes. You can't go camping. You can't tell a boat now. We can't have a gas barbecue. But life is just basically so rotten and so unfair. It's, it's horrible. System. And so what should be the role of the government here, Giles? Because, I, I mean, I noticed Madeline King Resources Minister recently, it was reported in, in comments to industry figures in Perth, she kind of talked up the role of, of gas in the future in terms of alleviating um, what she called energy poverty and, and a range of other sort of perceived benefits as well. But at the same time, of course, that, you know, we're, we're living in a different um, context in terms of government policy at the moment with the commitment to at least ramping up a sort of serious um, reductions in emissions. How should the government be trying to, I guess, get the right kind of information through to consumers to make that transition if people are able to? Yeah, look, I think Madeleine King should probably have a change in portfolio description. It's not so much the Minister for Resources, it's the Minister for saying nice things to the fossil fuel industry so that that feels so bad. Um, it's, um, I mean, her role is basically to sort of keep the existing industry going for as long as we kind of need it. Um, the government's role really has to be just to resist the pressure and the lobbying and the intense 
the you know intense campaign um, that's that's coming from the fossil fuel industry, and you just see it in the mainstream media. I mean, and it's not just the right wing media, like you know the Murdoch media is just some of it, the mainstream one. They're kind of just sort of playing, um, you know, playing this fossil fuel line. I mean, some of this, you know, the major financial papers. It looks like the sort of gas industry daily, um, just these sort of you know, endless amounts of reports about oh, woe is us, and you know, where are we going to head to without gas and things like that. Well, no one's talking about switching gas off right now. The big question, I mean, there are big questions here, is one, maintaining enough gas supply um, to meet the needs as we as we transition. But that really shouldn't be a problem because Australia produces so much gas that it just chooses to export 80 to 85% of it overseas. Well, you know, that can be tweaked. And if you actually talk to some of the gas suppliers, they actually see no problem with that. It's often just the gas customers or some of the distributors that, um, that use this as some sort of leverage. There's a big question about what we do with networks. And so what we've seen in various parts of the country is you've got some local authorities, or in, in the case of the ACT, building new suburbs which actually don't have gas networks in them. And that kind of solves the problem because mm. um, you know, they don't have like a, a, a 40 or 50-year asset that then becomes redundant. The question is what to do is what, what about all the networks that have already been built? And... Um, um, that's that, you know it's it's not an easy it's not an easy um, question to be resolved because when they build these things the way the regulatory system works is that they kind of say okay that will cost us a billion dollars to build this network what are we allowed to charge the consumer and the regulator says well you can get an X amount of return so let's say it's five percent a year over thirty years and so they rely on that um, to, to 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 fund their purchase and to justify their purchase but when you've got all the customers leaving the gas network because they've gone to electrical things and do the payments then get imposed on the the, 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 the the reduced number of people still operating on um, still accessing gas, or, or does some other sort of mechanism kick in? And it is, you know, it is it is one of the major sort of conundrums to resolve. Um, I think it probably needs some sort of government intervention or something. I just don't it think is a big issue, it. isn't it? Because you can imagine that, you know, you say we're having this conversation in 10 years' time. Who knows? We might be. Uh, but what those that are potentially stranded on, on the gas network with, with potentially higher prices and, and less efficient heating and, and things like that might be renters or people that can't in some way control the appliances in their homes. And so they're probably the last people that you want left paying the bill for a, for an ageing reticulated gas system, I, I, would, well, I would say. Well, exactly, exactly. And, you know, this is the same sort of issue we had about sort of five or ten years ago when we were talking about sort of people with solar batteries leaving the grid. Well, in the end, that didn't sort of happen to nearly the way, to nearly the scale that people thought it might happen uh, because people sort of did, saw the advantage of using the grid as like their own sort of big battery and probably cheaper when they're having their own battery in their house. But with the gas thing, it is, it is an issue, and as you say, it's the most vulnerable people who probably be left holding the can if that's the way it happens. Um, you know, you've got regulators saying things like, oh, well, people should be charged a lot of money um, if, you, if you choose to quit the gas network and, and, and choose not to use that pipeline. Exit fees now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah, look, it's, um, it, look, it's a hard one, and it does, it does need the government to think about that and what the fair and equitable thing to do is. And, look, it could involve um, payments or some sort of change in structure of the, of the regulatory system. Um, you know, it's a similar thing that we're dealing with um, in, um, in the transition to EVs, you know, you just think you've got this massive infrastructure, petrol stations around the place, you've got, um, you know, the way that we fund the roads, all, all that has got kind of rethought, um, and it just takes some sort of careful planning 
and and not being sort of strung out and beholden to to, to various um, lobbying um, and interest groups. We're speaking with Giles Parkinson, editor of Renew Economy. Um, so far, I've been talking all about gas, the um, the kind of current state of things and the future of gas in Australia. And you mentioned um, uh, electric vehicles there, Giles. There has been uh, kind of a, a significant um, lifting, I suppose, of vehicle emission standards over in the US. Um, can you just sort of talk us through what's happened there and, and what the potential implications could be for Australia? Yeah, well, look, um, so Australia is one of the only OECD countries in the world um, that doesn't actually have vehicle emission standards, and it's pretty much a disgrace, really. Um, you know, we've just, um, you know, apparently sort of it was ostensibly to protect the local car industry, but we don't actually have one anymore. So the result of that is that Australia has already become a dumping ground for cars and car engines, which are really inefficient, um, which are more polluting than um, they are elsewhere in the world and also more inefficient. So we're actually paying, I think, the estimate's about 500 to $600 on average per car extra for fuel a year because our engines are so inefficient. And then you add on that all the added health costs because, you know, we just don't control the particulates and all the other sort of, you know, the nitric oxides and all the other stuff that bellow out from from, from um, fumes into buses, trucks and cars. So the, um, the EU's had the tightest standards up till now, and that's why um, they've seen a really big uptake in electric vehicles over the last um, over the last five years. And now the US, as part of the sort of inflation reduction act, or an addendum to that, they've introduced these really quite tight emission standards, and they think that's going to translate into a market share of about 70% electric um, by 2030 in the world's biggest market, which is really quite extraordinary. I mean, it's, up, it's over 10% now already in, in, in certain parts of the state, uh, probably up to about 15 or 20% in places like California. But this is, um, this is really going to be quite transformative. And that has big issues for Australia because we can't now... We're either going to end up being a dumping ground for sort of car manufacturers and the dirty cars, or we try and compete and make it as attractive for the car makers to send their clean cars and electric cars to Australia. Because one of the things that we've seen over the last few years is that we've got this huge interest in EVs and there's huge demand for people wanting to buy an EV, but they just haven't been able to get hold of them. Yeah, they have so, to be waiting. They're waiting on waiting lists, aren't they? And so, I mean, are, you, are we likely to see uh, the the budget say anything about vehicle emission standards or anything like that? Giles, I'm sort of hearing that people have well, got their fingers crossed there. Yeah, look, we actually might be before the budget. Um, there's talk that um, so there's been like about a, almost a year-long sort of consultation on the National Electric Vehicle Strategy, and the talk is that it could actually be released this week by um, by Climate Minister uh, and Energy Minister Chris Bowen. So that's going to be really interesting. Um, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't sort of keep the can down the road and seek further consultations. Um, we've seen the car industry here saying, "Oh yeah, look, let's have tighter standards, but let's make it voluntary." Yeah, <laughs> that always works. I have to say, I do. I, I, I'm not on on social media all the time, but I did see a, a tweet of yours recently, Giles, where you took a photo of you waiting in line to charge your electric vehicle somewhere along the New South Wales coast. There, and good problem to have that. There's lots of people lining up, but what, you know, it made me wonder about your views on infrastructure and whether there is enough infrastructure out there for for the the growing number of of EV drivers. 
No, well, it's not, quite frankly. Um, but it is, it is being solved now. It is being built up ra- rapidly. We've got various states and we've also got federal government sort of funding new infrastructure. So, yeah, that was an interesting place. That's a, um, it, look, it wasn't so bad because I was actually sitting in this, um, the, um, the EV chargers at Port Macquarie are sit, sitting at this very nice winery and we usually stop there for an hour. So, and, and <laughs> that wasn't in the photo. I thought, oh, Paul, he's stuck on the side of the road, but no. <laughs> no, 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 no. He's sitting in the winery, just walked out of the restaurant to take a photo because couldn't believe how many cars were waiting. And, uh, we waited for about 25 minutes, but we were sitting inside having a cup of coffee, so it was actually quite nice. But like sort of sitting, I was watching people sort of queuing at a petrol station yesterday um, as people started heading back home and going, well, hang on, yeah, there's, there's, there's often queues, um, but it's much nicer to sit in the coffee shop and, and, and watch out the window rather than anyway. EV, the, EV charger at a winery, this is starting to sound really yeah, safe. Yeah, well, look out for the, <laughs> well, the wine industry started. lobbying, talking up EVs. <laughs> <laughs> it's starting to sound like a dangerous combination, but no, no, we're very good. Um, and we, we just we just the coffee and um but that's the thing about ev charging because look it does take you know 20 minutes or half an hour so if you've got a nice place to go and sit inside um and have a cup of coffee or even a quick meal or something like that um then that works really well so you know um it's going to be like the changing um changing face of you know the way we just sort of you know sort of um, power our vehicles and the way we sort of top them up i mean most of it happens at home but it's when you're on the road we were driving from Byron bay down to sydney and canberra so i've got to say we've had really the first and only time that they ever had to wait um, for a charge. I just really noticed that, you know, a couple of years ago there was never anyone there, but now there is. So, um, yeah, how interesting. It, it's a good thing. But, and, you know, look, it's our fault for travelling on a good Friday. We should have known better, but we did have a uh, deadline. The Easter eggs are waiting. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I mean, just lastly, you mentioned there may be a significant announcement coming up really soon around electric vehicles, and we sort of touched on some of the, the lobbying and the messaging that we hear around these, you know, potentially significant and, and far-reaching changes that, that could result. Do you imagine there might be a backlash from kind of the lobby groups or, or kind of the opposition and the like if the government does unveil a significant policy in this area? Oh, yeah, look, there'll always be a backlash. I mean, we just can't seem to help it, um, even when it makes no sense. Um, so, yes, expect a backlash. You know, people are sort of being told what cars to drive and it will ruin the weekend and you won't be able to sort of do all the other things. Um, so, yeah, inevitably, but really, if you just look at the uh, the major car makers, well, most of them, not all of them, I've got to say, um, you know, most of the major, major car makers understand where they're heading and why they're heading and what they've got to do. Now, look, sure, some of them would like to go at their own pace, um, but right now we've got the sort of climate imperatives. We really can't sort of wait around anymore. We've really got to make this transition as soon as we can. And the thing is, I mean, there's actually lots of electric cars out there. If you go to Europe now, you just see so many different electric cars, small, medium, large, reasonably low price, medium price, and, of course, expensive. And it's quite amazing just to sort of see what you, you know what's on the road and what's on the offer. In Australia, there's this huge demand. We see that. And, look, car sales, electric car sales are already 7% of the new car market, which is reasonably impressive. It's caught up quite quickly. But there's still hardly anything available um, for less than 45,000, available for less than 45,000. So that's still way too high for most people. There's lots of really nice cars around about 50, 60, or 70,000 if you can afford it, but most people can't, and most people don't want to spend that much money on the car, and I get that. So what these new standards will hopefully um, encourage is for all those car makers to bring all those other cars that they're selling in Europe and other countries and bring them to Australia and just increase the choice, lower the price, 
and you will just I think we'll just see um, just a huge uptake. I just think there's, there's an interesting statistic about Australian car average ownership of cars has gone from about 11 years to 12 or 13. And one of the reasons suggested for that is that people are actually hanging on to their older cars for longer because they want to they want their next purchase to be electric but the waiting and some of them some of them see the car that they want but they just can't get it but other people can't see the car they want because either doesn't fit their sort of lifestyle or doesn't fit their price range and that's the nexus that we've got to be able to break and hopefully with these vehicle emission standards that will actually encourage the car makers who said quite openly oh we send cars to europe because that's where that's where the rules are rather than to australia we need that to change yeah Giles, always good to to speak with you and we'll catch you again soon. Yeah, no worries. Thanks. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And it kind of feels like any time over the past year, federally or in most states and territories in Australia, we could make this observation that the last week has been a difficult one for the Liberal Party and it doesn't feel like it will get any easier to be a capital L Liberal anytime soon. Jeff Sparrow has some thoughts on this and it's great to have you back, Jeff. Good morning. Good morning, you two. Sounding both sounding very chirpy today. Yeah, I know. And the way I... we roll, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful, beautiful day out there. Um, I don't. I mean, do you think there's clouds in, in Queensland where where Peter Dutton is at the moment, or or clear skies uh, yeah. there? Look, it's easy to mock the Liberal Party at the moment, and it's also fun. So um, let's do it. Um, as, as you said in your introduction, they really are in a. Um, in a parlous state at the moment. I mean, people will recall the by-election in Aston a few weeks ago, the first time since 1920 that a sitting government has won a seat from an opposition in a by-election. But more generally, so the Liberal Party is now out of office in every state except for Tasmania, and there's been a whole series of of polls that just show um, how fragmented and fractured their support has been. They have hardly any seats in any of the um, urban areas anymore. And there's a new, there was a news poll out a few days ago that shows that their support has narrowed since the election and it's only with over 65-year-olds, retirees and Christian voters, those are the only demographics in which they still hold a lead over Labor. Really interestingly, too, the Greens are now up following the coalition among 18 to 34-year-olds. So if you paid that, you'd be a little worried about all of that. Yeah, it's. I mean, the, the two-party system has kind of, I suppose, been in decline for a little while if we look at membership of the two major parties and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, Labor has really been the beneficiary um, of that in, in some ways. But what is it particularly about the way that the Liberal Party has navigated that more willingness, I suppose, for people to look to independents and minor parties to, to put their vote and, and, and vote them in? Why has the Liberal Party not been able to, to navigate that effectively? Yeah, it's really interesting to compare the situation in Australia with the situation in the United States where the Republicans are grappling with something not so dissimilar. You might have seen that a whole lot of 
Republican supporters now are really concerned that the Republicans are taking positions on issues like gun control and abortion that puts them way outside what all of the surveys show the majority of Americans think. Someone is, um, as right-wing as Ann Coulter, you know, the, the, the far-right sort of provocateur, was recently like, pleading with Republicans to take a more electable position on abortion because she was saying this is just going to keep you out of office. And so what's going on? Well, if you look to Florida, Florida where Ron DeSantis, who is... The most obvious challenger for Donald Trump in terms of the Republican nomination is now taking really, really hardline positions that are out of step with what the majority of voters in Florida think. But he has to do it because they're in line with what the majority of Republicans party members think. So if he wants to get the nomination, he has to take these positions which put him out of step with the majority of ordinary voters. And I reckon that that's probably pretty similar to what's happening here in Australia, where the majority of Liberal Party members, and particularly Liberal Party activists, are way to the right of where the majority of ordinary voters stand. That is, the Liberal Party base has been radicalised, and Dutton is in a position where he's now torn between the people that he needs to support him within the party and the voters outside the party that he needs to get elected. And I think that's what in such a mess at the moment. Do you think that that's part of what led into the, the Federal Liberal Party's decision to back the no position on The Voice, Jeff? 100% that, um, that within the Liberal Party, um, The Voice is incredibly unpopular and I think Dutton fears that... If he were to support it, he would face mutiny with inside within inside the party. Um, you have to remember that the older style, sort of Menzies era Liberal Party supporters, are all long since dead, right? And so the branches now are full of people who have been who have come to conservative politics through things like social media, through Sky News or Fox or Fox News or the sort of American right wing blogosphere. And for those people who are, you know, the the the, 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 the sort of rank and file of the, of the party, it, it would be entirely untenable for Dutton to support something like uh, the vote and like like the voice. And so he feels that he has to appease those people, and it puts him in a really difficult position. I mean, I think some of the commentators have been saying, "Well, look, even if Dutton did support the voice, nobody would believe him." And, you know, he would be in a situation where he was un- had undermined his own status within the party but um, garnered very little support outside the party. And I just don't know how he, he or anyone inside the Liberal Party is going to navigate this disjunction between what the core of the party now believes and uh, what 
ordinary voters now think. Yeah, to me, this sort of decision to back the no campaign, to have people like Julian Lisa, the, the former Shadow Attorney General and, and Shadow Indigenous Affairs Minister, stepping down from those portfolios and, and the former Indigenous Affairs Minister Ken White coming out and leaving the party as well, um, because now sort of Dutton, you know, we, we, we've heard what he said about the situation in Alice Springs and to me there were kind of echoes of the the whole African gangs in inverted commas furor in Melbourne when he was really whipping up this kind of fear campaign about this other who were going to sort of threaten our, our values and our way of life and that sort of thing. So do you sort of imagine going forward that, that Dutton might lean in more to that kind of culture war type bent, keeping in mind, I suppose, that it hasn't really paid off for the Liberal Party and the Coalition generally at recent elections? Yeah, see, I think we have to bear in mind that there is a business model now that is supporting this kind of stuff. So if you are a conservative politician who plays to that base, who dishes out this kind of red meat culture war stuff, you're pretty well guaranteed a spot on Sky News, you know, a column in the Australian, you'll get taken up by eyes and Murdoch Press, and you'll also get a huge um, following on, on, on social media. Like, if you ever see those, um, uh, those those charts of the politicians getting the most traffic on places like Facebook, it's the far-right um, uh, culture war politicians who, who, who get that kind of play. And so you can build up this following for yourself, which you can then monetize in terms of speaking gigs and, and, and so on and so forth. But the problem is that it doesn't necessarily translate into um, in, into the mainstream um, politics. So if you think of something like Sky News, it works for them as a business model because what they need is a small number of highly engaged listeners you know, or, 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 or viewers, and they can advertise to those people and they can make lots of money out of it. But that doesn't necessarily work uh, for the Liberal Party as a whole. And, you know, the Liberal Party's traditional constituency, which is big business, is much less concerned about these these um, cultural issues than they are about things like industrial relations and productivity and the traditional sort of claims of, 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 of big of big business, and so Dutton is kind of torn between between these 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 two competing claims. And I, I mean, the problem that he has, I think, is on the one hand, there's the example of Malcolm Turnbull that everybody in the Liberal Party looks to as a failed leader who couldn't mobilise the Liberal Party base and was widely despised by the Liberal Party base. And on the other hand, there's Tony Abbott. I think in some respects, Tony Abbott is kind of playing a role in Australia, a little bit like the role that Donald Trump is playing for the Republicans. That is that all of the Republican base looks to Donald Trump as a kind of commitment politician who says the stuff that they all think, who, you know, fans the the, the culture war, and in the same way, here in Australia, there's the sort of spectre of Tony Abbott as the guy who says the stuff that you know that that that, that, that the rank and file members want to hear. And again, I think you can see um, Dutton kind of flounder between those 
between those two positions and unable to decide which way to go. Jeff Sparrow is with us, writer and senior lecturer in journalism at the University of Melbourne. Of course, um, Breakfaster passed uh, here at Triple R and other shows as well. And I, I wonder, I mean, if we can sort of quickly step it down to, to state politics uh, when it comes to the Liberal Party in WA, um, you know, it's often reported as being in a death spiral over there uh, and in Victoria, they, they lost out at the, the last election. Um, and I wonder, with regards to the Liberal Party and I suppose coalition in general's role in opposition, uh, you know, some people are sort of lamenting the demise, I guess, of, of a strong opposition voice, um, particularly at state levels. Do you think we need a strong opposition to have good government, Jeff? Uh, do you think that's necessary? Well, not from these clowns. I mean, the, the, the less we hear of these people, the better. I mean, yes, of course, governments need to hold, uh, held accountable, but that doesn't mean that we, you know, uh, need uh, Peter Dutton or um, or the, the, the state versions of um, Peter Dutton to do it or have any expectation that they are going to, to, to do it. I mean, I think one of the problems that they have, right, is that traditionally the reason why you joined the Liberal Party um, was power. Right, like if you were someone who was supported the conservative side of politics, if you weren't going to get into power, you would just go into business anyway and make money, right? And so, as soon as the Liberal Party gets into a situation where it doesn't seem like it's a route to actually getting uh, genuine power, then the source of new recruits, the, the, the source of candidates, tends to um, tends to dry up, and then that encourages. Um, activists who are recruited from things like the blogosphere and social media. So if you look at that statistic about young voters and that there are more people voting for the Greens between 18 and 35 than for the Liberal Party, what that suggests to me is that there are very few young people who are interested in conservative politics, but the young people who are interested in conservative politics tend to be those young people who come from the extreme right. That is the kind of people who get radicalised around social media and, you know, love the kind of, you know, outsiders, Sky News kind of politics. And, you know, so Dutton faces this problem. Like, if he plays to those people, the people who are already joining the party, he's out of step with the mainstream. If he doesn't play to them, he has as a constant sort of undermining... Um, I'm starting to feel sorry for him. <laughs> The only thing I would say is that, like, it's, you know, it's tempting to gloat about all of this, which is what I've been doing for the last um, 15 minutes. But it's also worth bearing in mind that if you look at American politics, Trump is still polling at the same level as Joe Biden. Yeah. And so the, the thing to bear in mind is that, a conservative party in the state that the liberals are in now. Well, there's two things that they can do. One of the one of the, the strategies that the Republicans are taking is trying to get power without majority support. So in the United States, that means suppressing voter turnout, um, you know, or engaging in various kinds of nefarious practices to get to get elected as a minority. Now, that's a lot harder to do in Australia because of compulsory voting. But the other thing that they can do is present themselves as committed, passionate, true believers in the context of a political system where most parties are just full of sort of faceless, um, 
you know, uh, faceless drones who have no passion for politics at all. And that was kind of part of the Trumpian uh, appeal. And it was also, to some extent, part of um, Tony Abbott's appeal. This sort of sense that, like, you know, you might not agree with everything that we stand for, but you know that we committed and that we really believe in. And so I wouldn't entirely rule that out which would mean that the Liberal Party might potentially um, be able to win in the future, even though they espouse a very hard right-wing politics that most people aren't actually committed to. Well, I mean, with with young people, if, if they're not talking about things like the environment, cost of living and particularly housing, which we know that people, in a high under, inflation people under 35 years old are, um, are really highly concerned about, then they're going to they're gonna struggle, aren't they? So. Yeah, yeah they, they are, although, I mean, the question remains, isn't it, whether the Labor Party can actually deliver on any of these things. And so in a context where, you know, people have put their faith in a Labor Party that then does not deliver, perhaps the the Liberal Party might be able to mount a strategy where they run on these kind of hard conservative politics and present themselves as a kind of passionate true believers who are kind of pushing against the sort of mainstream orthodoxy, in, in, again, in the way that Trump did in 2016. Now, I'm not saying that particularly likely um, at the moment, but in a situation where it seems like mainstream politics is disappointing everyone on all fronts. And I think that's not out of the question in the future. As you say, I I, I just cannot see any of the political parties coming up with a solution to the housing crisis anytime soon, or the cost of living crisis for that matter. So in that context, perhaps, perhaps um, they could maybe run on that sort of uh, Trump-esque, Abbott-esque kind of fashion. But in the medium term, I think I, I think Dutton is really going to struggle to keep the um, keep the party together because you know there will be some liberals who will play to this kind of Sky News base, and as we've seen over the Voice, there will some who will be tempted to sort of push for more of a sort of uh, Malcolm Turnbull-esque small L liberal centrist position yeah. and. Yeah, so it will be fun to watch it play out. That's absolutely. And, you know, there's people like Bridget Archer publicly saying that she's only really sticking around because she still has one last remaining morsel of hope that she can make change within the party as well. So, you know, it feels like this story, story's got a lot to play out yet. Um, always great to have you on the show, Jeff. Thanks so much, and we'll catch up again soon. Okay, cheers, guys. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.